Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Welcome back. We are on the road once again in Washington, D.C., and I'm here with my old friend, or my new friend, Leon Weaseltier. Uh, Leon, what are you, the founder, the editor of Liberty? I'm both, I guess. You're everything. No, just those two things. Yes. You have a new issue out. It's, um, it is uh, an excellent issue. Thank and you. it is, just to be clear, it's volume four, number two, winter 2024. And as we noted, um, noted before we went live, this, you're four and a half years into this project. Mm -hmm. That's the 14th issue, yeah. So when we talk about the project of Liberties, very briefly, what exactly is it in your mind? Um, it is a countercultural way of uh, discussing all the big ideas and horrible realities of our time. I say countercultural because uh, it is not topical commentary exactly. It's certainly there are no rapid responses or hot takes. Uh, the essays that appear in it are long uh, because subjects require length and uh, I'm tired of hearing from writers who were told that they their, their idea is profound and they have 1200 words in which to write it up. Uh, and so the idea was to recover a very anachronistic, almost archaic way of getting people to write essays. There making it very clear that liberalism is not remotely the same as progressivism and to take the the stain, the stench off of the word liberalism and instead to treat it like the only moral, philosophical and political order in which justice is remotely possible. Um, and the second was to rehabilitate both by argument and by example the humanities, old-fashioned humanistic writing. Uh, one of the real tragedies of our time and one of the things for which we will burn in hell is the extent to which we've let the humanities slip through our fingers and rob them of, of the cultural prestige, the social prestige too that they once had. I understand there are economic factors and so on, but uh, all of life cannot be understood in terms of economics. And so liberalism and the humanities, uh, to try to make them urgent and even sexy again. Uh, and that's, you know, and I have to say that it's been very gratifying to see, not just in the States, but really all around the world, that our objectives have been clear to a great many people and a great many people uh, have written and wished to write for us 
people who are wonderful writers and thinkers and scholars. Uh, the idea was to slow it down, uh, both thought and reading. You know how the New York Times eventually, the New York Times eventually caves about everything, but they caved one day and decided to publish a reading time with each of their pieces. So it, you'll look up a piece and it says reading time four minutes. And you know my joke is that we should put under the titles of our essays reading time four hours uh, because we're in we're engaged in a different sort of intellectual activity. Leon, uh, you mentioned the first goal of the the collection uh, or of the enterprise, the the project, whatever you want to call it, is the rehabilitation of liberalism, uh, an ambitious project. And I was really struck, though, in the latest issue of, of, of how that in many ways did enjoy, it did indeed join the dots of, of all the essays yeah. in the collection, or most of them. Let's begin with the final essay, which is by you, on savagery and song. Zionism, or is that oversimplifying? No, it's not oversimplifying it, but it's, uh, you know, the sad thing, the melancholy thing about this piece, um, which does, in the end, really advocate liberal nationalism, both for the Israelis and the Palestinians, uh, is that I've been doing this almost for 50 years now, and um, it's heartbreaking how how recalcitrant this particular situation is and how how immune it is to any lasting progress um, you know there are people who have grown frustrated with the two-state solution because it um, it had been many decades since the 1967 war and there was no plausible evidence that it was about to become a reality and so they're developed and there is a huge opposition to the idea of two states which of course was the original idea when the United Nations created the State of Israel and the State of Palestine in 1947. Uh, the Jews accepted it after enormous internecine struggle within the Jewish national movement. The Arabs refused to accept it and attacked. Uh, What's changed, unfortunately, is that a large number of Jews, including the horror who is now the Prime Minister of Israel, also now refuse to accept the idea of partition. But the idea of partition is the only moral uh, and eventually practicable solution that there is. It's the only fair outcome. And unfortunately, the the nightmare in in that's the south of Israel on October 7th, and then the nightmares in Gaza in the ferocious Israeli response have pushed back the likelihood of this, of this solution, uh, even though now its urgency is greater than ever. So what I tried to do is to just work out um, the issues behind uh, the feelings and the ideas behind 
um, the Israeli response, uh, its relationship, the relationship of October 7th to Jewish history, the question of, of reason versus emotion in making national policy, uh, all sorts of relevant and very saddening considerations. I was also struck, I, I hadn't come across the work of Albert Memi, a oh, North yes. African sociologist, historian. I was struck by the piece by Kian Taibach yeah. on Memi. There's, um, there's a link, I think, between what you write and what he writes about Memi. Perhaps you might briefly tell us about well, Memi, Memi and see was, the connection. Memi was an extraordinary figure. When I was a young man, I revered him. Uh, he was a Tunisian Jew. Uh, trained as a psychologist uh, and worked in the same clinic as Franz Fanon for a while. Um, he then uh, emigrated to France where he lived a long life in Paris. He uh, wrote, he was a brilliant writer. Um, he was a very, very important thinker early in the history of the theory of decolonization, though he eventually changed his mind about certain things. Um, he was a very important Jewish thinker about Jewish history and Jewish politics, not just in his time, but in the in the orbit of European colonialism. Uh, a very remarkable man who died just a couple of years ago. He lived the top near the top of my list uh, so I was very happy uh, Kian Tajbah who wrote the essay is an Iranian writer he's not a Jew he's a brilliant analyst of Iran and of the whole question of uh, post-colonialism which is increasingly the framework within which a great deal of world politics is now viewed not just by academics but also by demonstrators in the streets. And so one of the purposes of that essay was not just to, uh, to, to restore, to resuscitate Memi, um, but also to put a little intellectual pressure on the post-colonialist framework and to show that it is uh, increasingly become uh, an illiberal framework, an illiberal framework. And again, um, you know, whatever's wrong with liberalism, and it has made mistakes and committed abuses and committed even crimes when it has been in power, whatever is wrong or has been wrong with liberalism. And, and fascism on the other have been infinitely greater and more hideous and more costly. Um, and I think that uh, liberalism should hold its head high. It has a lot less to apologize for than you'd gather from reading the papers or most political commentary. And I think it remains 
the only decent and realistic framework for as much justice as can be achieved in, uh, in this life. I know of no political arrangement that is superior to it in the way of equality, justice, and fairness. Uh, and in fact, you know, the, the, the greatest criticisms, for example, of rampant capitalism, and it certainly is rampant now, uh, are to be made within liberal terms and in the name of liberal values. Uh, the great thing about the liberal order was that it gave people economic freedom, but it determined to regulate it. That's why the debate about regulation is also a debate about remarkable man. I mean, he was, uh, and Black Skin, White Masks is one of the great books of the 20th century. I have no doubt about that. Um, Leon, the, the issue has a couple of essays which address and perhaps expose some of the weaknesses of critiques of liberalism from the left. Mm -hmm. um, David A. Bell writes a, a very interesting, very erudite piece called The Anti-Liberal about a man called Samuel Moyne, uh, a critic of liberalism from the left. Perhaps you might tell us a little bit about Moyne and, and why you think this is an important essay. David Bell, of course, is the, not of course, I didn't know this before I, I read the piece, he's actually the son of Daniel Bell, I one of the, the most influential, I guess, critics of consumer capitalism, although maybe he wasn't always a critic. Dan, well, Dan was a genuinely important and original social theorist uh, in many ways. And David is one of the most formidable historians of Europe uh, in the English language. And he is also uh, his father's son in the sense that he is a liberal. Sam Moyne is a professor of law at Yale. Uh, he was a student of mine when I taught at Harvard Law School. Uh, I like him, um, but he has been writing um, almost perversely against liberalism in ways that I find to be not only wrong, but kind of mischievous in the current climate. I mean, by the current climate, I mean concretely the political climate. Uh, People who write, people who denounce liberalism right now have got to understand that what is waiting in the wings as an alternative to liberalism is Donald Trump. And um, I don't think people should censor themselves for that reason, obviously, or that this is some sort of state of emergency in which progressives or left-wingers should not express their views. But we have to understand that if Trump wins and if he um, fulfills all our nightmares about him, the only protection that that the left will have against the right-wing fanatics in our country will be the institutions of liberalism. That's what there is. Uh, that's what there is. Um, so Sam Moyne wrote a book 
in which he denounced Cold War liberalism and, and he had analyzed six figures, important Cold War liberals. His choice was a little bit bizarre, but never mind. Which is, right? Uh, no, not all. Some, most of them were. But his choice, I mean, he left some out that should have been there. He put some in that shouldn't have been there. But in any case, he, it, see, he made it seem as if Cold War liberals were, were dour and um, dark and would, had a very limited sense of human possibility and were too realistic about power and were not, as he put it, sunny enough. And this is a slander because the Cold War liberals whom he was attacking all did their work at the time of the Second World War and afterwards, which is to say these men and women were living in a time in which they witnessed the wholesale slaughter of millions and millions of innocent people by the forces of illiberalism, not just the forces of illiberalism, but in the case of the Soviet Union, by the, for the, the most powerful force that called itself progressive in the world. And that's one of the reasons I hate the word progressive, because in the 30s and 40s, it really was a term for a fellow traveler with the Soviet Union. Um, but, you know, these people, uh, they couldn't have been sunny because their world was littered with corpses. And they had a very realistic, they felt honor-bound to develop a very realistic appreciation of human possibility. They saw the consequences of political illusions and fantasies and, and, and theologies and myths. Um, and Sam says that they weren't sufficiently dedicated to human emancipation, when in fact they had spent a lot of their lives as ferocious anti-communists fighting precisely the consequences of certain doctrines of human emancipation. Those consequences, of course, having been disastrous. So it was a slander against um, it was a slander against them, but it was also a way of, I think, of deluding his readers into believing yet once again in the age of Aquarius. I mean, we should be smarter than that by now. Um, we should be smarter than that by now. Uh, so David Bell reviewed Sam's writings and treated them very, very strictly and very, very critically uh, and provoked what I gather is a very um, lively and useful debate. Yeah, it's interesting that he doesn't, perhaps in contrast with you, Bell doesn't really see liberalism as a coherent, unified, powerful tradition, which is one of his critiques of Moyne. So yeah. in a sense, you and Moyne are on the same page in seeing liberalism as something very concrete. Well, no, I think liberalism is concrete and also abstract. It is not a, a tradition in the way that Catholicism is a tradition uh, or Marxism is a tradition. It is uh, a cluster of ideas and texts and experiences that go together 
by virtue of what they have in common. Uh, it is a kind of family of, of doctrines that more or less comfortably go together. There are many kinds of liberalism, uh, but they all have more in common with each other than they do with fascism or with Marxism or progressivism. Yeah, one of the other interesting essays, which you talk about a family of doctrines, this is definitely a family discussion or perhaps argument, is a piece by Stephen Darwell, Money, Justice and Effective Altruism, that addresses the issue of a, a, a Rawlsian notion of justice versus the notion of, just, of justice articulated by effective altruists. I assume that both the effective altruists and the Rawlsians, they're all liberals, right? Yeah, I guess. Well, the, the effective altruists, I'd say, would probably call themselves progressives, and they have a certain, I think, a certain cultic quality, uh, which was exposed by the Bankman-Fried scandal. But the point of this essay, I asked Steve Darwalt to write precisely not about Bankman-Fried or about, the, about what everybody else was writing about. I wanted, it was clear, the Bankman-Fried exposed the, 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 the reach of the idea about effective altruism. And I thought, again, it would be useful to put some intellectual pressure on it. And Steve Darwall thinks very deeply about uh, social morality. And uh, it turned out, and I was very interested when the piece came in to discover, that he believes, as he shows in this essay, uh, that he thinks effective altruism is actually inimical to justice. Uh, which mm. is... Certainly um, the Rosian notion. Yeah, but certainly, but he's striking at the heart of it, because what are these people, if not justice warriors? And for him to come along and say that, actually, if you look closely at how they view the future, and how they view the allocation of material resources, uh, in fact, justice is not only what they will not, is not only what they will not achieve, but that they are operating in a different philosophical universe. Uh, it's a very provocative. Yes, it's, it's, well, as, as so much of it is. The effect of altruists, of course, you mentioned Bangman Freed. It was a rather odd version of that. But one of the things that effective altruism suggests is that just um, goodness, at least, can be quantified. Right. Um, which explains why it's such a popular creed in where I'm from, Silicon Valley. You got it. Um, yeah. You have two pieces. I mean, one of the things I should add that one of the m lesser causes at Liberties is to campaign as often as we can against the quantification of human life. Because, you know, we've published things on, I think it's one of the most important questions our society has to ask itself now that we're all choking on data, which is what can a number capture and what can't a number capture? And that, that to me is almost, it's one of the distinctions between wisdom and folly in our society now. And two essays in the, in the collection address that head on. The first one by Carissa Valiz on the technology of bullshit. And then uh, an essay by Adam Kirsch, Literature GPT, I think it was probably my favorite piece. Mm -hmm. You'd expect in this uh, an attack on technology and AI, but Kirsch's piece 
it's really provocative. It's like a bomb intellectually. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Look, we are not. It's too late for anybody to be luddites, and we are not um, against technology. Uh, we profit from it. Um, we profit from it as handsomely as everybody else. However, technology is always deployed, always deployed before it is properly understood. And the reason that is the case is because of the, the wealth that it generates. And in the case of Silicon Valley, the amount of wealth that was generated by these technological innovations is incalculable. Is incalculable. Unfortunately, Leon, it, it can be calculated. Well, the numbers are, are just beyond, astonishing. They, I mean, it's hard. Yeah, and so, um, and so, the, the 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 really we're now living. Thank God, the first fifteen years or so of the digital era, people were just dizzy, and there was all this futurism and this digital tech tech techno, technological optimism and all these loony philosophical doctrines, many of which are still around. Uh, but we're now at last living in a time in which people are beginning to critically examine the effects of this technology. Uh, when it first came out, the first people to begin to think critically were the lawyers who worried about copyright. Uh, you know, there were, there were dimensions of the problem that were, that were discussed. Now people understand that the technology affects consciousness and human relations, intimate human relations, and culture, and spirituality, and I mean the entirety of human life is affected by it. And so, um, it, I regard it as our job to do as much as possible to take the wind out of Silicon Valley sails. Uh, I really do. Because, you know, these huge fortunes were, you know, the largest fortunes in the history of humanity were made with the smallest skill sets in the history of humanity. These people know, they're engineers. They bring an engineering mentality, which they deploy with unprecedented brilliance. However, an engineering mentality uh, cannot explain the most difficult questions in human life. And when, they purport, when it purports to, then people have to rise up and worry about these things. And so we've run... And one of the things I think most people would agree with in terms of the consequences of technology is many of the consequences are unintended. Certainly the technology yes. don't understand them. Yes. And that's one of the, the themes of the Kirsch piece that I found particularly intriguing, where he suggests that in, in our age of chat GPT, which is going to become ever more quote-unquote intelligent and ubiquitous, the power of the author is going to be replaced by the power of the reader, or the centrality of the author is going to be replaced by the centrality of the reader. In other words, uh, the main figure on stage is going to be the reader. The uh, pre-internet French theorists, uh, Derrida and so on, already 
understood this before the internet. Perhaps you might explain this and suggest whether this is, I couldn't really tell from Kirsch, whether this is a good or a bad thing, not only in terms of culture, but also in terms of liberalism itself. Well, you know, people, um, people always complain about liberalism, that it is um, individualism and nothing more. That's not true, uh, not even remotely true. Um, individualism, I mean, liberalism, as Tocqueville first noted, is extremely conducive to cooperation and association and so on. However, however, in some ways liberalism is about the individual. And certainly, um, I don't want to say a liberal approach to art, because I don't think art should be evaluated politically under any political rubric, but uh, it is certainly the case, and I think Adam is arguing this, that uh, AI and other developments are um, destroying the idea of the individual creator, of the individual creator. Uh, you know, when, when, when Derrida and other French theorists came along with the idea of the death of the author, uh, you know, Roland Barthes talked about the death of the author. Some of us rose up to actually defend not just the reality of the author, but the necessity of the author. Uh, of course, the irony in the case of someone like Barthes was that he was himself not only a great author, but one of the most idiosyncratic writers uh, and beautiful writers that you could find in his time. Uh, so what Adam is trying to do, and I think he's right, is to insist against all of this on the foundational importance No one, that even the writer, the creator, didn't know was there. However, um, it is not just a, a, a romantic capital R illusion uh, that that the individual creator is um, is is is, if you pardon the expression, the primary producer of culture. And uh, the, if we want to replace the nobility or the uniqueness of the writer with the uniqueness or the nobility of the reader. Another of the memorable essays in the collection, uh, Leon by Ryan Ruby, oh, Reading yeah. and Time, celebrates the reading of Proust. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I'm very happy with that essay. Uh, what Ryan does there, it, look, Proust is notoriously, infamously long, uh, which is to say there is no experiencing Proust quickly. Proust, one of the conditions, not just of reading Proust, but of grasping Proust, is an attitude towards time that is precisely what our technologies and our lifestyles are devoted to destroying. That's the New York Times uh, yeah. fault. You know, the, the cult of speed, of, of the acceleration of everything. And the obsession with quantification. The, all of it. The all Times will now quantify exactly how long each piece That's right, that's right. And so what Ryan went ahead and did, I think very smartly, was defend Proust actually as a kind of antidote 
to the destruction of human attention in our time. Now, he's not saying that everybody has to read Proust. Uh, and though your life would be much poorer for it, if you don't read Proust, God knows you still can live a good and meaningful and rich life. Uh, however, um, Ryan juxtaposes the, the velocity of our minds with the temporal demands that a work of art like Proust, or there is no work of art exactly like it, uh, make upon us. The same could be said of certain musical works. I mean, if you're going to sit down, if you go to a concert uh, to hear a Bruckner symphony, you better not be impatient because it develops very slowly and you simply have to surrender to its temporality. Uh, you know, if you go one evening to hear uh, Tristan, Wagner's opera, you better not tap your foot impatiently because Uh, touches on one kind of defense of liberalism or another. We've talked, Leon, already about the defense of liberalism against the left, but also there are a couple of pieces that really resonated with me in terms of defenses of liberalism against the right. The piece by Michael Walzer, yeah. uh, Notes on a Dangerous Mistake, an essay very critical of two conservative writers, Sorab uh, Arami and, and Patrick Deneen. When I was reading this, some, it, it occurred to me that this was like watching Monty Python, that these conservative critics of, 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 of liberalism are really quite absurd. How seriously do you think we should take them? Waltz uh, simultaneously seems to take them very seriously and, and without any kind of seriousness at all. He decimates their arguments. But should we be serious about these anti-liberal writers on the right, so-called conservatives like... Arami, Arabi, and, uh, and Denis? Emphatically, yes. Uh, you know, as a great conservative writer once said, ideas have consequences. And, uh, and they, they fly through the air and get into the water supply, and they um, have concrete effects in the real world, so-called. Uh, you know, Michael is actually much, if you, if you remember, um, Michael notes, and this is something that I've um, that I've noted too, that that Sorab um, actually has been evolving. Uh, his last book could have been a social democrat's book. But it's uh, absurd. Well, no, I have to say, uh, Sorab's thinking. Look, I'm not a Catholic. I don't share his Catholicism. I don't have to share his Catholicism. He doesn't have to share my Judaism. So we meet on the ground of, of public philosophy, of social philosophy, of political philosophy. And in his case, I have certainly detected uh, in his writing and in our conversations, um, there's been some very uh, affecting, with an A, movement in his thinking. I mean, he is now uh, passionate about the condition of American workers which is not an idea that you associate with conservatism. Deneen, I think, is, uh, is a different case. 
I think Deneen is really arguing um, for some very ugly, quasi-theocratic, authoritarian ideas. Uh, and the religious tinge that they have does not make them any more attractive. Uh, so I think, you know, one has to make distinctions between uh, one's, one's ideological opponents. Uh, Michael Walter's essay is important, I think, because he simply, he very clearly and lucidly, I think, describes their views on various things and then offers not just philosophical holes in their arguments, but also historical holes in their arguments. Uh, I think it's a very powerful piece. But yes, I think, look, I think that right now we are living in a golden age of attacks on liberalism. This is a golden age of illiberalism and anti-liberalism. The liberals are now the dissenters, not the right and not the left. The liberals are the dissenters. And I think that there will, no, there will be no recovery from what ails us in this kind of low and confused time until there is a return to a kind of liberal clarity, to liberal first principles. Uh, I don't say this just propagandistically. I mean, if you look at the substance of the ideas that I have in mind, I don't see how we come out of this as a healthy society, a morally healthy society, uh, except on the basis of the principles that were enunciated by Jefferson and Madison and Mill. Going back to the 18th century, is history repeating itself in some ways? It um, always does and it always uh, does. Leon, in the sense that in the 18th century as liberalism evolved, the early liberalism, it's perhaps the most direct political com competition or one direct com political com competition was enlightened despotism of Frederick the Great, Catherine the Great, um, Joseph of Austria, Maria Theresa. Today, another challenge to liberalism is the enlightened despotism, both of Singapore, you have an essay on that, and when yeah. began, but also in particular, uh, Mark, uh, Romark Gerek's critique of Saudi Arabia and yeah. its quote-unquote enlightened despotism. Yeah. Uh, look, enlightened is the key word here. The real, the fight we're having still is over the Enlightenment. Uh, the Enlightenment was a deeply flawed enterprise. I'm referring to the 18th century in that its so-called Enlightenment was never complete. However, without this Enlightenment, we could not have broken through into any kind of democratic life, into any sort of um, politically mandated tolerance, uh, uh, and so on. Um, you know, a great many crimes were committed in the, in the name of or with an Enlightenment vocabulary. And I'm referring mainly to communism and certain so-called socialist regimes. Uh, it was a very abused vocabulary. But, um, and of course, the conservative response to the Enlightenment was to rise up and denounce its secularism and its, and its godlessness as if the Enlightenment mandated atheism and, I mean, some, and didn't just tolerate atheism. I've always wondered against some of my right-wing 
friends why religious freedom is not enough for them, why they need the government or state power actually to endorse and exhibit what they believe about God and the universe. Uh, but that's a separate conversation. So I think that, um, yes, I think that liberalism is now both the most embattled of the worldviews and the most urgently necessary of the worldviews. So is MBS as much a danger in some ways as the, the, the critique both from the left? Yeah, look, MBS, you know... In Saudi Arabia, of course. Uh, Saudi Arabia is, you know, it's uh, it's it's a family with a lot of money. It's not sort of a state, um, and uh, what he, what what you know. But what we mean by enlightened is a lot more than letting women. Israel in some way that will advance the Palestinian issue. Uh, I do think that there is already a de facto peace between Israel and the Saudis and that the price that the administration is considering paying the Saudis for this grand bargain that they're talking about, meaning uh, providing them with nuclear energy and, and, and creating a, a, a security treaty with the United States, I think those are those prices are both too high. I think they are fundamentally a frightened uh, group of people, and even MBS. Uh, I think that um, you know, right now, our our strategic interests have converged with this with those of the Sunni bloc of states, as has Israel's strategic interest converged. Because really the greatest uh, danger in that region, overwhelmingly, is Iran. And a new regime in Iran, and I'm not calling for the United States or anybody to invade Tehran, but the greatest change that we could wish for in that region is... A, is enlightened ontology of knowing the world and of seeing the world and I was struck with one of another really strong piece and it's the, this is this issue is full of fantastic writing by John Summers oh. on the counter life of autism which explains how his son doesn't 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 look at the world it reminded me in some ways of Richard Powers work particularly uh -huh. bewilderment uh -huh. And the way in which, and, and Summers uh, doesn't address this, but the way in which perhaps our appreciation or perception of the environment changes all the standard and essential ontologies of liberalism. Well, look, there are different epistemologies that have been, been attached to liberalism, and relativism is one of them, but there is no, there is nothing in liberalism that requires it to hold a relativistic view of knowledge. Obviously, no objectivity is possible without 
recognizing the degree of subjectivity or partiality in each of our perspectives, but nonetheless, objectivity is not an illusion. It is an asymptotic quest. Uh, as Amartya Sen has put it really definitively, he's made the, the best formulation of it in my view. What we seek and what we can have is positional objectivity. That is to say, we continue to try to see as clearly as we can using all the self-critical tools that we possess. Uh, we reason publicly, we experiment in science publicly, we open our ideas to public uh, scrutiny, um, we behave collaboratively, uh, and so on. And the, the idea is that slowly but surely we will gain more truth than falsehood. Now, I believe in this completely. I think that the idea that objectivity is an illusion is a very dangerous idea that uh, plays right into the hands of philosophies of power. Uh, Richard Rorty once wrote an, es an essay saying that the only alternatives we have are objectivity or solidarity. So what becomes, Leo, finally here, because you've been very generous with your time, what becomes of people like John Summers' son, uh, an autistic child who he's trying to understand and struggling to? Well, what becomes of the autistic in a liberal world? Look, we live in a world in which many people are disadvantaged in many ways. Uh, we live in a world in which uh, people see the world in different ways, either owing to uh, differences in physical constitution or in personal experience or in education and ideology. Uh, I think that John Summers' son, and you're right, it's a really moving essay, uh, he is going to depend for the rest of his life on science and kindness. Those are the two things, science and kindness. Uh, and hopefully as science advances and hopefully we, he will not experience the incredible callousness of which our society is now capable, uh, his life will be better than it could have been.